Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. So I guess that we've pretty much accepted that each summer, a large portion of this country will be engulfed in flames. A third of Canada is covered in trees, and raging wildfires are now a routine part of each record-setting, dry, hot summer. From Toronto, this makes for disturbing pictures and video clips. From Winnipeg or Vancouver, it makes for smoky skies, shitty air quality, and gorgeous sunsets. But what about the communities that live in those woods? Disproportionately indigenous communities, communities in the margins, where Canada has pushed and confined them. Last summer, dozens of communities like that had to evacuate their homes. They had to hit pause on their lives, temporarily abandon their land, and wait. Wait in hotel rooms, in cities that are sometimes entirely foreign to them. They just have to wait, wait for repairs that will eventually allow them to return to communities that have a high chance of being evacuated again when the next wildfire season comes. Now, you might consider that cycle futile and unsustainable. 
Or you might see it and the need to deal with it as a preview of what lies ahead for many of us, whether you live in Manitoba or Malibu. Sarah Larniuk is a freelance climate change journalist based in Winnipeg, but she traveled off the beaten path to bring you this story. And a warning to listeners, this story discusses residential schools, trauma, and substance abuse. Wait for it. We're starting this story in Little Grand Rapids First Nation, an Anishinaabe community with an on-reserve population of about 1,400 people. It's located in east-central Manitoba, and as the crow flies, it's only about 260 kilometers northeast of Winnipeg. But because of how isolated it is, it might as well be 1,000 kilometers away. You can only get here by plane or ice road in the winter. But right now, it's virtually deserted, and it has been for months. Close your eyes and tell me what you can hear. I can hear the water, uh, which is life, and the wind, the trees, the leaves. There's the lake, the wind, and the trees. One other thing I know you can hear. And of course the generator. The generator. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't want to say that. (laughs) It's like, it's the sound of the community right now. Yeah, it's... uh, it's usually, during the day, you can hear people, you know, talking or, uh, like, even just across the bay here, you can hear kids playing, and uh, and right now there's nothing. It's a ghost town. It's it's quiet. It's too quiet. It's nice and peaceful, but it's, it's quiet. It's, I think it's, you know, we need to get people home. That's what's missing here. Those are the voices of Blair Owen, a band counselor in Little Grand Rapids, and his father, Oliver Owen, who owns a small plane outfit that services remote First Nations. Little Grand, along with the neighboring flying community Pungasi First Nation, were evacuated in mid-July when wildfires ripped across the province in one of the most severe wildfire seasons ever seen in Manitoba. This time, no homes were burned. The damage was isolated to electricity infrastructure. But in the recent past, this community wasn't so lucky. In 2018, again, everyone was evacuated and four homes went up in flames. The dangers of fire and smoke have long passed now when I visit in September. But even though the community wasn't directly touched by fire, damage to the long-distance power transmission line has kept almost 2,000 people from returning home for more than two months. They're stuck waiting in cramped hotel rooms all across downtown Winnipeg in the meantime. So these generators. Since the danger of the fire subsided, a handful of people have returned, and they either live in the dark or they run a backup generator around the clock. The noise really dampens the serenity of this place, which might as well be a damn postcard. It's so beautiful with the rocks, the Canadian shield, and the warm fall sun bouncing off the lake. But this visit is far from a happy one. I was brought here out of desperation. Oliver and Blair are trying to get media attention to put pressure on Manitoba Hydro to expedite the repair work to the transmission line. They worry the longer their people are stranded in hotels all across Winnipeg, the deeper the damage will run. Here's Oliver Owen. We've already lost, uh, between the two communities, I think we lost four people already. What do you you mean when you say that, when you say you've lost four people? uh, Because of their drinking, they... 
it's been two months, so they see in Little Grand, uh, it's a dry reserve. Okay. You know, you're not allowed to drink. Yeah. You're not allowed, but but there's some people that are that don't have control when they came here. So there's liquor stores everywhere. You know. Yeah. So they're they are drinking to death. Yeah. So we lost already four people. They died. Died this, this summer. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's since uh, uh, well, everybody got evacuated. It was July the fifteenth. Yeah. Yeah. So Oliver's idea was that we'd fly down the power line and see the damage firsthand, maybe glean some answers as to what the holdup was. But first, he wanted to show me around town. Did you want to go for a ride in the community? Yeah, sure. Okay. The bears have been breaking into houses out here and doing a lot of damage. So we'll go see if we can get into that house. I asked the owner yesterday, she said, go ahead. Stopping at the far end of the community, the burned remnants of a house still remain from the last time the community was evacuated, just three years ago. A ways down the road, a local RCMP detachment is letting off plumes of black, sooty smoke. That's the jail. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the RCMP must still be here. Oh, or yeah, no. they're here, yeah. Okay. It's called the diesel generator. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, that that's stinks. Oh, that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, that's... Oh. 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 Who should we run into on the road but RCMP officer Sergeant Sean Farrell. It's been like this for about two months. Because huh. they're emergency generators, they're not meant to run 24-7. Yeah. yeah. Um, luckily enough, my folks all have, uh, we have generators to run uh, some of the basics in the houses, freezers, fridges, that kind of thing, and a few a few extras. Plus, we've got two big, large emergency generators that run our water system and our uh, sewage system, as well as our office. So, okay. But those run on diesel, and we don't, we have to import a, an awful lot of diesel fuel uh, yeah. for that. How are you even getting that in? Uh, we're, it's coming in by plane, and we're bringing it over by helicopter. We brought some over by boat. It's uh, it's a chore to do for yeah. sure. But uh, our generators are probably running about, uh, probably consuming a barrel a day each, and then our our smaller generators are probably consuming upwards of 120 liters of gasoline a day. Okay. So all of that uh, all of that adds, adds up after time for sure. As the forest fires kind of get more intense uh as climate's changing it's going to become a more regular problem is it like i don't know is it Could something well be, but there's no easy answer to that either right if we're talking climate change if we have another J june july as hot and dry as we had this year then certainly there's going to be the potential for another another forest fire that's an awful lot of virgin uh forest that is fuel for forest fires so although a, a fair amount of it was burned this summer there's still an enormous amount of forest to go right yeah. so Next year, will will a portion of that line burn? Two years from now, will a portion of that line burn? Sure, it's possible, but how do you prevent that? Uh, stop global warming? I don't know. Like, what's an easy answer to that? I mean, like, what, a road would make this a lot better, right? If this was a road access community, even yeah. evacuations wouldn't be so dire. Absolutely, but uh, and I think there's been talk over the years about putting a road in. Whether that's going to happen or not, that's up to infrastructure, I guess. But. Yeah. But uh, certainly an all-season road, uh, I know that's made a big difference for Blood Vein uh, Barrens River. In fact, in an interview with a spokesperson for Manitoba Hydro, an all-season road was the only thing the utility company claimed would help speed up repairs. 
that delays weren't for a lack of resources, but rather terrible terrain, weather, and principally, the inaccessibility. In 2015, all-weather roads were promised to Little Grand Rapids, Pungassie, and a number of other communities on the east side of Lake Winnipeg. The projects were supported by the provincial NDP government at the time and the federal government. But when the PC government came to power a year later in Manitoba, the road projects were kiboshed. Local NDP MP Nikki Ashton has long advocated for that move to be reversed. Almost our entire province is uh, is further north in Pungassie and, uh, and does have road access. And so essentially what you see from Pungassie and all, I would say, east side First Nations that continue to be isolated is really the impacts of of uh, systemic racism and the failure of our governments and particularly the federal government that has uh, that fiduciary obligation to First Nations to recognize that, that, that uh, you know, in this day and age, nobody should be isolated um, uh, like this. Uh, these are two communities uh, for, for whom, uh, um, you know, life Daily life is very difficult, increasingly difficult, and uh, uh, and and the climate emergency is uh, uh, has has made life not only more difficult, but frankly even impossible. Well, and you you paint quite a picture about the difficulties of continuing to live in these communities. It, I was hoping to talk to you about how colonization has progressed for these communities because. The Indian Act forced these communities into very selected areas, very small parts of their traditional land. And then over time, we've just made it almost impossible to stay there. So where, what is the responsibility in your eyes to, to improve access? Where does it go from here? And what is the responsibility of the federal government and, and provincial governments, quite frankly? First of all, it's it's really important to to acknowledge that uh, these two communities, um, in spite of of colonization and uh, um, the, all of the challenges that they face, are incredibly resilient. And 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 so I would say the number one thing we need from Canada is, and the federal government is to listen and act on the priorities of these communities. And uh, a major priority is uh, to put an end to this isolation. And yet, when you hear from federal government officials, it doesn't even get on the list. They they'll talk about band-aid solutions in terms of medevacs or in terms of of uh, food subsidies. You know, I both of which are completely inadequate responses. But what I would also say is the climate emergency further reinforces how critical it is to address this isolation. I don't know how many people listening to this story have been contacted by somebody in a community that doesn't have a road that feels trapped because of a forest fire that's encroaching on their community. I've had those phone calls and they are terrifying. And I'm not even in that community when I get that call, right? And I've received those calls from Little Grand, from Pungasi, and it is terrifying. Powering up the plane and flying over the hydro line, the damage is evident in the form of charred power poles. Surveying the damage, it's also easy to see why fixing the line is so tough. Poles are planted in rock, then swamp, then rock again, and the line even spans several substantial waterways. Beneath the plane, there's helicopters buzzing around, undertaking repairs. 
But for little Grand and Pungassi, every day away from home brings new challenges, and the waiting is intolerable. Here's Councillor Blair Owen again. This evacuation was only supposed to have been because of the smoke, because of how bad the forest fires were this season. And then when the forest fires went out, you know, there was no power in the community, so then our evacuation was extended. And then, like, right as of, like, right now, like, you know, people, you know, people want to get back home. We're trying to say, like, you know, yes, we understand Hydro's going as fast as they can, but, you know, I think, you know, the two-month time frame for the Hydro to be back on is unacceptable, considering if this had happened, let's say, you know, in a non-Indigenous community, I think, like, my opinion is the power would probably would have been back on already, you know, remote or not, isolated or not, that's, you know... That's how I, I feel. Like, I feel like we, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, everyone's in hotels in the city. Yeah, okay, fine, that's great. But living in a hotel for two months away from your home. Kids have had their school years completely upended. Families have been separated from one another at different hotels, left with no means of transportation aside from their own feet. But for older folks and kids, that's not really an option based on the distances. And to make evacuees feel really welcome... Security guards were hired to watch them at their hotels. That's, you know, you're, we're going to have a, we're going to have even bigger issues when people come home, you know, just, you know, probably, you know, mental well-being, you know, like I mentioned, the addictions, like it's just, you, you can say it all you want, like, yeah, we're looking after everybody, but no, it's, people are suffering right now being in these hotels. You know, we're trying to get that message out there, too, to, you know, like, you know, we're telling the Red Cross, you know, we're telling Indigenous Services Canada, you know, like, we need to get our people home. Like, it's just like, it's like everything's falling on deaf ears. It's like, you know, you'll get home when you get home. Like, don't, don't bug us about it. And I mean, you're the leadership in this community. How does that make you feel? Well, the, like, that they're just... They, like that they're leaving you with nothing you can do. It's frustrating. It's depressing. It's, you know, feeling helpless. Like, you know, I get calls every day, every week. When are we going home? When are we going home? When are we going home? And, you know, and you just get, you get, you keep getting the same update, you know, six to eight weeks, four to six weeks, three to five weeks. Good news came three days after the visit to Little Grand. Manitoba Hydro announced that repairs had been expedited and that the power would be back on in mere days. Bruce Owen, a spokesperson for Manitoba Hydro, was adamant that media inquiries about delays did not factor into announcing the new timeline, but rather it was because of good weather and speed. Typically in these types of situations where we're um, doing maintenance on a power line in a, a remote area, we get access in, in the winter when everything's frozen. So you can bring in uh, the vehicles, the track vehicles and the equipment uh, relatively easy. Um, but in this circumstance with, uh, you know, the summer months, um, it, it was, you know, we, we, it was a challenge. Despite the difficulty of the repairs and the likelihood this challenge will be presented again, Manitoba Hydro is not pursuing any kind of alternative service delivery. In fact, across this country, more and more remote transmission power lines are being built to distant First Nations communities 
in order to end the use of diesel-generated power, which is great because it means less pollution and fewer health problems. But there's little discussion about how vulnerable this infrastructure will be in a warming climate and the new problems outages could create. I'm Amy Cardinal Christensen. I'm a Métis woman from Treaty 8 territory. I'm from the Cardinal and Lavakan families. And I'm also a research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. And so my research there is all on Indigenous fire stewardship and fire evacuations and of Indigenous communities is mostly what I work with now, given like the, the big problems um, in, in that area. She wrote a book about it, following the experiences of seven First Nations after being evacuated. And many similar trends emerged. People really seem to think that like once the flames have passed, that evacuations end. But in lots of the communities that we've worked with, like the loss of power is such a huge um, thing. So uh, in almost every community actually that we worked with, they lost power for a substantial amount of time. And one of the biggest things was when they were returned to their community, you know, you get home and your, your fridge and your freezers haven't had power. And many of these communities are reliant on, you know, wild meat and their traditional foods. So some communities have two, three big freezers that are now, you know, full of moldy, spoiled food that they have to, to deal with. And then anyway, so it, it's and sometimes, you know, they'll give them grocery card vouchers, but, you know, that doesn't replace the loss of, you know, years of traditional meat um, that, that they might have have lost. So yeah, I think that that's one thing people really don't realize is that the tie-in with infrastructure and how that can be impacted by um, wildfires. And the connection between infrastructure and the trauma of the evacuation experience go hand in hand because the longer the power is out, the longer people are displaced. You have people going from, like you said, a dry community um, where they speak mostly their traditional language and all of a sudden going to, you know, somewhere where, they're, where they were having a hard time, you know, reading street signs to take public transportation um, and, you know, just kind of felt dumped in, in these communities. Enel Keeper is one of those people who felt dumped and forgotten about. He's a 64-year-old member of Little Grand, and I met him outside of his hotel in downtown Winnipeg. The view and noise of constant traffic is a far cry from the scenic, quiet home he's used to. Yeah, so what do you need to talk about? Consider. No, 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 it's all right. It's all right. I'm fine. Okay. Okay. I may be old, but I can still stand up. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, so I'm just talking to people in the community about what this whole experience has been like, and... Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me, I mean, what it's been like for two months living in the hotel. Well, it's like, uh, it's really sickening. Like it's been uh, a place where I'm stuck in a room, confined in there, and the only thing you can do is, you know, sit in the room. And I've been uh, separated from my wife during that, during that process, because she's a house parent. And she looks after different kids. Okay. So I can't stay there with her because okay. uh, that's the role of CFS. But the experience is not good anyway. <laughs> Definitely not good. Yeah. This is not the first time. The other time it was the same thing. It's a very bad experience. And I think it hurt a lot of people. A lot of people meaning we lost, uh, I think, eight people now since uh, we came here 
the last time we lost about six due to alcoholism because yeah, it's, it's something that's so readily available. My whole experience about this, it took a lot of time away from me, like, you know, meaning uh, the things I loved doing back home and your family not being around you, I miss them, like, you know, and my grandkids. I, spend, I used to spend nights with my grandkid, like my little grandson, he always comes over. It's devastating. It hurts. It hurts that you don't, you don't see many people. Kind of brings back to, uh, to being in residential school. When I was uh, going to school here, like back in uh, 60, late 60 and 70, I was here for four years at the residential school. So, you know, I was not allowed to go home for Christmas. So we were held back and kind of, kind of hurts when you think about it because all the pain that I had to go through. I used to cry in bed. And this is the same feeling I had. I, I do have really hard time at night sometimes. There's absolutely nobody to talk to. So all you do is get up, go out and go up, you know, and uh, it hurts. Like that. So I was there for four years, suffered my, my I did my suffering and everything. So kind of. This brings it all, yeah, all back. It brings it all back. It's just like a, a reoccurring thing that happens. And it was the same thing. It does bother me. I am glad to be going home. Tell you that much. Okay. Enel is not the only person who is relieved to be going home. Visiting several hotels spread out across central Winnipeg, I heard the same thing over and over and over again. But as Enel pointed out, not everyone will be going home. Pre-existing medical conditions paired with relived trauma boredom, isolation, and unfortunately, easier access to alcohol resulted in a number of deaths of community members while they were in the city. Different people gave different estimates for the number of lives lost. Community leaders say it was at least four, possibly more. But the Red Cross, which is responsible for all stages of the evacuation, did not respond to questions on the topic and did not agree to an interview request. Indigenous Services Canada contracted the Red Cross to perform this work, but no one was made available for an interview from the federal department either. Regardless, for the people suffering through the new loss of a loved one, on top of an evacuation and a pandemic, even one person is just too many. I met Aurelia Moore outside of her hotel near the Winnipeg airport. She had just buried her son the week before. You'll also hear her daughter Ashley, who is rather distraught in the background, and a warning that the pain is pretty raw and tough to listen to. Just so sad. There's evacuation, like... It's the fires that... They don't... This is our second time being evacuated out. Yeah. How can you say that word? I just... We, everybody just wants to go home, get back to the way things were. Sure but for us, it's going to be hard because he was my first word. son, my first baby I lost. So, yeah. like, it didn't really kick in yet, but when we get they home... They don't know... 
it's going to be hard for a lot of people that lost loved ones here in Winnipeg. He was a good man. What was his name? Derek. Have you been offered any support as far as trying to deal with your loss? I would say yeah, but I just I just talk to I just talk to I pray every night. I talk to Jesus. He helps. Yeah. And plus, my mom and my sister and I'm staying in another hotel. Well, I'm here with all my granddaughters and my daughter. Like it's pretty lonely here. But still have family and some friends, but it's not the same. I'd rather be closer to my mom. I'm staying at the Fairfield. Most wonderful present you can ever get is to go home, but. Without the love, the love, my, we took my son home already. He's buried beside my dad. You had to go home for, a, you, you brought him home for a funeral? Yeah, yeah, just for the day. But my mom and sister, and they stayed there overnight because they just didn't want to, you know, take him home, bury him, and then leave right away. So they stayed the night with him, over there with him. But I had to come back because I had my granddaughters here. So I couldn't stay the night. But when I get home, going to be doing some visiting. I imagine that's all been very, it's hard any time, but it doing is. that while you're evacuated yeah. must be impossible. Like I didn't, I don't, like what she said, it didn't really kick in yet. Oh, your mom. Just when we get, probably when we get home. Yeah. I got some too. For the communities, again, that, that we worked with. Here's Amy Cardinal Christensen again. I think that there's not a good understanding of, you know, like you said, the fatalities or the loss that's involved with these fire events. So, you know, I went to this one uh, technical workshop after the BC fires and somebody there was saying, you know, well, I think it was in 2017, you know, oh, well, it was a great, you know, great thing because we didn't have any fatalities with the fire events. And um, a First Nations woman actually stood up there and said, you know, that's not true at all. Like, you know, sure, in that the 2017 fire events, we didn't lose anyone, you know, being burned by the fires from any of the communities. But we had heart attacks. We had people in hospital because of asthma. We had, like you said, medical conditions that weren't properly managed, that people were lost. Some. There was um, a few, I think, where evacuees, you know, kind of went missing. People couldn't find them after the event. So unfortunately, I think that it is um, common. And I think it's not only for First Nation communities that we don't understand those those impacts. Um, but I think that they're felt more in First Nation communities where, where it's oftentimes a small community being evacuated. And like you said, from somewhere, you know, their traditional territories that they've known um, and then all of a sudden they're taken in, into these other places. I think that the impact is often a lot larger. A fundamental part of the problem is that evacuations are carried out in a way that makes sense to someone in an urban neighborhood, but not what makes sense in these communities. Or so says Jim Waldron. Hi, my name is Jim Waldrum, and I'm a medical anthropologist uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. Even when it comes to the order people are removed from communities, where they're taken, how they're split up, top to bottom, he says, none of it makes sense. Well, you're, you're, you're fundamentally talking about um, the fracturing of the, the social fabric of a community. Uh, you know, communities aren't random collections of people. They are, they are networks. 
Uh, and in indigenous communities, the networks often look a little different than they do in southern urban non-indigenous uh, settings. Uh, and, and how people are connected, the relations that they have um, are often much deeper and much broader than we would typically find in a suburban uh, non-Indigenous uh, family, right? Uh, and so those networks are absolutely crucial. Uh, without, the, without the networks, um, the sort of the social norms begin to, to change. And uh, um, some might say they even break down a little bit. And so the, the answer is, is to not um, not disrupt those networks in these evacuations, especially longer term evacuations. Uh, you know, so, I mean, that's just one, one key to it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, in some cases, communities have been evacuated for a very long time. Typically, we're looking at a few weeks, right? And so when we're looking at that kind of a time frame, then it's not that difficult to uh, keep the networks together and, and to basically have things for people to do um and and that may be the crucial thing because of course there's no work i mean you know they're just they're just there uh they've got nothing to do uh whereas at home they would be constantly busy and so you know i mean that's just a that's just a a recipe for for a lot of potential social problems right so how do we do this better Amy and Jim are both big advocates for setting up Indigenous communities to be able to take in Indigenous evacuees from other communities, something that has been done on an ad hoc basis with success, but not as a structural change to the emergency response system. And so I think the best example that I have seen is to come ups in um, Kamloops. And so when communities were evacuated this summer, past summers, they basically open their arbor grounds there. They don't like, you know, they, they just offer food. You don't have to be a registered evacuee or anything. They try and help people find accommodation. And they kind of have been worrying about money or reimbursement or other things after the fact. And we saw that too in um, Saskatchewan when Beardies and Okamasis uh, First Nation opened up what they called the Res Cross. Um, where, you know, instead of um, going to these communal kind of centers, they could come and stay on a First Nation, they could camp, they could have traditional foods, community gatherings. I think they're the examples where there's less bureaucracy and where First Nations people are really empowered um, to support other nations. Um, and there's less reliance on kind of, you know, that paternalistic, you know, federal government, you know, provincial government kind of, we will help you and provide your needs. <laughs> These issues have been studied for years. Academics began studying Indigenous evacuation protocols in the 1990s. The Auditor General of Canada published a report in 2013. A House of Commons committee released recommendations in 2018. And from the different sources, recommendations have included training Indigenous firefighters, expediting the speed evacuation claims are paid out, or incorporating Indigenous leaders into emergency management command structures. Recommendations even include using the traditional burning practices of Indigenous communities to lower fire risk in the first place. Indigenous people have been using fire on the land to reduce fire risk for millennia. And, you know, we have our stories and our oral histories from our elders, um, but oftentimes those aren't believed, unfortunately, by um, agencies. And so, you know, colonization first happened when settlers first started coming to Canada. 
one of their first things that they wanted to do was to protect timber. So to stop fires from happening. And what they didn't see was that those fires are actually protecting, you know, the timber and the, the big trees out there. Um, and what we're seeing now really is, is the loss of, of, um, of basically huge swaths of forests um, to these massive fire events. In I think the first fire suppression campaign that I've been able to find was in 1610 in Newfoundland, where they said like, nobody shall set fire to the forest anymore. And basically as settlers moved across Canada, um, that came with them. And of course, with that, as we know now, came increasing fire risk. This has been studied in the 90s. I saw a 2013 report, 2018 report. It just, uh, I guess, have you have you seen any improvements over that time frame? Uh, not really. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know if I can qualify that. I have not seen uh, any meaningful um, Im- improvements. I mean, the government says it makes a better effort to keep families together, but I'm not sure there's a lot of evidence of that uh, because we're still hearing the, uh, the same experiences about the fracturing of the families. And it really just comes back to the the, the evacuation model that they're using and how they, they triage uh, who's at risk and who isn't, and uh, uh, they need to rethink that model. It's a broad, it's a model that that doesn't fit the cultural context of of these communities. In the 2005 fiscal year, Indigenous Services Canada spent $31.5 million on fire suppression, evacuations, and recovery. By 2018, that figure had ballooned by more than 400% to a whopping $161.2 million. Consistently, more money is spent on evacuations and recovery than on preventative measures or emergency planning. But while that money continues to flow, it doesn't seem to properly serve anyone involved. In a statement, Indigenous Services Canada pointed to further increases in funding in the 2019 budget that are focused on prevention and emergency planning. But no one was made available to speak about those programs. Members of Little Grand Rapids First Nation and Pungassi First Nation began their return home on October 4th, 81 days after leaving. At long last, they're going home. But everyone knows in the back of their mind that this will probably happen again. And again. And not just to them, but to people across the country. Nearly one-third of all wildfire evacuees in Canada are Indigenous. And you might be tempted to ask, at what point are these communities simply no longer viable places to live? But I'll tell you this, I spoke to many people who live in these remote First Nations. All of them drastically impacted many of them traumatized and in mourning. And even still, not one of them considered abandoning their ancestral land, their home, as a viable option. In fact, it was unthinkable. That's your Canada land, and Canada land needs you right now. I'm asking. Go to canadaland.com slash join, become a member, subscribe, five bucks a month, nine bucks a month, have a look at the stuff we want to send you, tell people why we're worth supporting. For one month a year, I implore you in detail to go and do this. We need you now to keep this whole thing going. 
We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. This episode was reported and produced by Sarah Larniak with Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by SoCold. Syndication, by which I mean we make Canada Land available for free to dozens of community and campus radio stations across this country. And that's handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, if you want stuff like this in this country, I ask you once again, support us. Go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. 